catcalling is a form of sexual harassment. And uh, okay, yeah. But it's interesting that it's who catcalls now. It's like ethnic minorities. And if you look right. at who's getting all pissed about it, it's middle-class white women. I'm sorry to say that, but it, that's often the case. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. All right, we have Cyber Dandy and Ashley Frawley. It is January 12th, 2023. When we are recording, I'm not quite sure when I'll release this to the, the public, but um, uh, we are going to be talking about sex and sexual the <laughs> sexual revolution today. Um, uh, Cyber Dandy, you had initiated the inquiry into the sexual revolution, suggested we cover it on the Sublation Magazine show. And this is sort of a debrief on that. So uh, what what was on your mind? Why did that topic particularly come to mind? Was it and, and how did it, I guess, relate to our conversations about the family? Right. So I'd watched uh, a number of the episodes that you and Ashley have done where you touch upon the family and the left and some of these topics about how the state has been intervening into the way children are raised and things like that. And I couldn't help but notice that one of the main left-wing oppositions to the family comes out of the counterculture. And even before that, Mm -hmm. the free love movement, which Mm -hmm. is even before Karl Marx. And it just seemed like there was a bit of a, a gap in the in the big picture that we're talking about when it comes to the family without introducing those, uh, those components. Mm. Okay. Um, so tell me about the free love movement, um, in the 19th century and, and maybe even before, um, and what, uh, was it at the time, what was the free love movement responding to? So initially, it comes out of people like Mary Wollstonecraft, William Godwin, the early utopian socialists who were responding mostly to marriage. And Mm. the notion of free love wasn't so much the hippie notion of polyamory. Mm. It was more so just uh, being able to be in a relationship that's committed um, without the church or the state licensing it as a marriage uh and this was more of a feminist critique at the time but you had a lot of other socialist uh angles on it especially in the early anarchist movement that saw the family as something of a uh a burden to a really communal society and you watch that grow um, all throughout the early socialist period 
and you see it realized in practice, especially in, of all places, Israel, on the kibbutz, and um, using communal child rearing and things like that. But in the West, you see it really uh, challenge conservative notions about sexuality in the family when it becomes psychoanalysis with Otto Gross and Wilhelm Reich and their ideas of uh, sexual liberation. How would your typical marriage uh, come to be um, in the time of the utopian socialists? What, what, what did a marriage look like at that time? Was it mostly arranged marriages at that point? When did love start being considered the primary reason for marriage? Throughout history, people have gotten married for a variety of reasons, and love was sometimes one of them. However, it wasn't such a common practice in the West that it became a well-known truism. That didn't start until the 18th century, when the idea of marriages based on romance as an ideal started to slowly emerge. And this trend continued into the 19th century, because businesses and factories weren't the only thing that the Industrial Revolution, well, revolutionized. What was it about uh, the, you know, we were talking about the family today and the way in which the state is intervening in the family um, and protecting the nuclear family and, um, you know, extended families as well from state intervention. Um, uh, what do you think the free love movement had to, you know, looking back on it, uh, would contribute to our conversation today? So if we're talking about the early free love movement, I mean, this would be just the entire way that we think about romance and dating and choosing your lover and whether or not your marriage is one of uh, taking your wife as property or not. <laughs> um, but if we talk about really what I think is more influential, which is like post-Freudian uh, liberation of the libido, this rebellion against the Victorian uh, repressive dynamic i think that's way more of an impact today than uh than the other kind of free love mm -hmm. and this is actually what i want to hear about from ashley what what's come up in your research in, along that terrain i think for me what i've been looking at is um policy trajectories at least since the early 1990s toward seeing intervention in families as increasingly um, significant to the solution of social problems. So that's where I come at it. And that's why um, I get a little bit, I suppose, worried when I see people, this happens a lot where people kind of have an idea of something and they're not relating it to a present context. And they have no idea where it's come from and they just kind of deal with it in the abstract. And they're like, oh, families, they're bad because <laughs> I'm a leftist. And I know something, something, 19th century, something communist manifesto, <laughs> ergo, I should, you know, not hold on to this idea of families as something uh, that should be, I don't want to say protected, but I, when I say protected, I mean like um, that you should be really worried when, you know, states try to lower the bar for intervention into families in terms of child removal and that sort of thing. Um, Cause this is what's happened is that gradually the bar has been lowered um, and it all sounds very good. It's all about child well-being, um, And, you know, well, we shouldn't just say what, 
parents shouldn't do. We should say what they should do. We should have a positive vision of child well-being. But then, of course, that means that there's like a list of things. And if you don't do that list of things, then you are depriving your child of a right. When people say, oh, children have a right to well-being. Children have a right to this. Children have a right to that. And of course, like they're all based on middle-class ideals of how children should be raised and studies done on white middle-class families in the United States that have globalized. And so it's not surprising then that children of immigrant mothers get taken away more frequently. Children of indigenous mothers get taken away more frequently. Children of poor mothers. Um, There's a study by um, Bilson and Martin, I think from 2016 that showed in the UK in the the 2015 tax year. Um, I think it was 20% or 22% of children had been investigated before their fifth birthday. 22% of all children had been investigated by child services. Um, You know, unless you think parents have suddenly become really, really bad, which I highly doubt given the history of how children have been raised. Um, You know, 22% in the UK. So where was that? That, In the UK. Yeah. In the UK. And of Mm -hmm. course, when when you look at the sort of percentiles of um, poverty, uh, of course, the, those in the lowest two, um, deciles um you know up to half the children are on um, care orders and things like that so you know there's an enormous amount of intervention into families and people on the left don't care they don't bother they you know when there's like any kind of legislation that goes think of the children you know oh yes i'm on side of that without thinking of the long history of um of of child removal of you know indigenous children and that sort of thing they don't they don't think about that. They don't think about the um, fights to recognize working class families, um, which was part of the reason why the Owenites, for example, in the 19th century lost the um, support of the working class because they were like, they were all against families at the time when work, workers were fighting to have recognition of their families. So there's, it, I think it's a long kind of sort of complex history and you have to understand why these things have come to the fore, why all of a sudden there's this rhetoric of children's rights Um and this is what I'm trying to explain in my current work is that there's this very neoliberal impulse um, that underpins what seems like a very positive lefty develop leftish development, which is, you know, children's rights discourse and so on, um, which uh, because it has become powerful because childhood has come to be positioned as a powerful determinant of everything that goes wrong in the world. All, you know, all these social problems, cycles, poverty has come to be understood as cycles reproduced across generations and governments have to disrupt that and all this sort of thing. So that's where I'm coming at it from. Multi-generational because each generation is reenacting the same behaviors as their previous generation. Um, So it's a sort of atomized um, uh, or individualistic uh, thought about how poverty is created. It is down to the choices that individuals make. Choices and behaviors and, yeah, and lack of like reading books and all sorts of things. It's all right. very rationalized and studied down to the the most minute detail. Yeah, and they'll find all sorts of you know. It turns out that the majority of poor people don't read, right? So they'll they'll cause make they'll act as though that is a causal relationship so, and in reverse. Um, by the way, just as off to the side, twenty two percent of all children in the UK are investigated by Child Protective Services. Before the age of five, you said 22% of 
of the UK population is impossible. Yeah, I don't know if I've, I'm not sure if I've mangled that stat, but you can look it up. It's the authors are Bilson and Martin, and that's the title, something like that is the title. It's either 20 or 22%, something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to reproduce the very thing I was <laughs> complaining about and say that's, you know, a direct <laughs> cor correlation or causation, certainly. But nonetheless, it, it's worth noting that the, that poverty tends to be, you know, those who are in poverty are more likely to be investigated. Um, mm -hmm. So but, there's some interesting research that I was just reading today as well, um, where there's this uh, tendency to, it, sometimes in kindly terms, sometimes in less kindly terms, there's a tendency to say that working class parents and poor parents are bad parents um, because they, you know, they'll say, they'll say like, oh, it makes it difficult to be a good parent because of the context in which you live, which is true. Um, but I was just looking at some research today, as I mentioned, that um, showed that this is, it's not that working class and poor people don't read to their kids <laughs> and they don't do all these sorts of things. It's just that the benchmark is like upper class families and like the enormous intensiveness that goes into child rearing. That's seen as the the benchmark because what, you know, I always use the example of musical chairs, right? You, what they do is they do all these studies of the people who get left out. <laughs> so you know you play a game of musical chairs and music stops someone gets left out and they're like oh well why did you get left out and it's like oh i tripped and fell and they're like okay well let's let's do something to make sure that you don't trip and fall next time let's give everybody training play again that way and no one will be left gets, out of the game of musical yeah. chairs yeah and then somebody somebody gets left out like well what, what would happen and you're like oh well i just wasn't fast enough all right let's give you training let's make sure everybody goes fast enough <laughs> somebody gets left out and they're like well what is it and then they're like Let's do a brain scan. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you know, and it might be that there's some like small difference in people's brains that explains why that this time they were the one who got left out, but that's not the cause of it, right? Mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So you change the characteristics of the working class and you just wind up with a, you know, with a highly educated working class, which is a good thing, of course, but it's not going to end the structural nature of poverty and inequality. Um, but that's kind of the logic that guides a lot of these kinds of studies. So they'll look at like the people who move out of, of poverty and they're like, well, what did they do? We'll just give those characteristics to the people who got, get left behind. Or what are the characteristics of people who are highly successful? And it's this, this, and this. <laughs> and then they think, well, that must be the reason why they're in those, those classes. And, you know, they're, I'm, you know, I don't want to kind of make it a caricature. I mean, that's what it's become, but there have you know, new labor did attempt to give lip service in the nineties and early two thousands to a structural nature of inequality, but it resolved in this kind of behavior management. So, so I want to go is, back to free love. Hold on, Jared. I'm going to give you. Uh, I just want to kind of try to bridge the gap between what Ashley's saying, and what you're saying. But you, you know, hold on to what you're thinking. Well, I can bridge it if you like, which is, <laughs> which is that you just have to understand that um, this kind of undermining of, I don't say like undermining of the family, and people will be thinking that I mean like those darn homosexuals getting married. <laughs> what i mean i mean like challenges to the privacy of the family um tend to be you know totally embraced on the part of leftists and nobody really stands up against it um because of this sort of legacy of free love and so on and you have to understand that we're in a different context 
Um, although it's not really that different. These are really old arguments, but they've just been sort of rehashed in leftish kind of language and become powerful when the left kind of imbibe neoliberalism. Um, oh. So that, that's what I, why I kind of rail against it. <laughs> okay, but I want to go to the free love movement and make just a point out something, which is that um, the socialists at the time were not turning to a bureaucratic state to try to solve the problem yep. of the family in the, in, mm -hmm. in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, yeah. And that the, the demand for free love, um, you know, was actually a, a demand for the state to be less involved. Yeah. That's what cyber dandy said right at, at the beginning. It's so actually, I, yeah. well, I want to ask a question to, to you, Jared, and then see. If, and you ended up by saying that in the 19th century, after the post-Freudian understanding of free love was one which focused on uh, liberating the individual's libido, right? So I want to know how you think, or maybe how both of you might think, and, we, and we're going to be doing some speculation here, all right? So we're not going to, this is not an academic paper. <laughs> um, uh, but the can, what if there is a connection between the move from a social demand to a move towards an individual, an injunction on individuals and, a, and, a, and an intervention for intervention of individuals and sort of a lifestyleism that emerged in the 20th century where you'd say okay we're going to liberate your libido you as an individual won't be constrained by these super ego injunctions or this or these rules um and we'll, you'll find free love as an individual um regardless of the the political situation here and because it's all about your psychology about your psychoanalytic um understanding maybe of yourself um do you see a connection between the turn towards the bureaucracy and the embrace of this post-libidinal uh in uh, approach to free love uh, that's well, for both of you yeah this is where i think it gets kind of weird and complicated because in the 1950s or after post you know after world war ii what we saw was that this idea of the nuclear family specifically was being supported by the state, like in Germany after, you know, when they're reconstructing, they're really focused on the state intervening on behalf of a nuclear family, not on behalf of like other kinds of families, which were seen as not appropriate. If you look at housing in America be, being built for single family units. Um, what era are we talking about? Like Post-World War II here? or Yeah. So the, the expansion of the suburbs, all these different things that built up the ideal of a nuclear family as like the, the prime economic and social unit versus immigrants who were seen as having extended families mm -hmm. and seen as uh, not fitting in because of that. or And even European immigrants like uh, Catholic families, Italian families, they were seen as a bit backwards because the sons would live at home until they got married and moved out mm -hmm. instead of 
moving out earlier, all these things were looked at as not good by the state at that time. But it sounds like now or since the 90s, there's been some sort of reversal that's happened where um, now the nuclear family is being seen as the problem, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Because. Oh, yeah. Not just the nuclear family, but also extended families. So like, especially like um, grandmothers and grandparents, um, then they're like outdated ideas <laughs> seen as, as problematic. So um, it, the the knowledge and wisdom that's passed down from generations, um, which, you know, like my great grandmother was an indigenous midwife. Um, and so there's like a ton of this sort of traditional knowledge that was accumulated and passed down to her. And I think generally in Western societies, leftists are kind of okay with that. But if you think about like white middle-class <laughs> grandmothers or white working-class grandmothers, they're like, mm, you know, they have this kind of um, scientific outlook on, on how children should be raised. But of course, you know, I, I've kind of gone off track here, but what I mean to say is like, the business of raising children of motherhood or whatever parenthood grandparenthood whatever was the domain of those people <laughs> right and and what you did was the accumulated knowledge of generations um and now that has been sort of deauthorized and mothers are no longer the authors of what it means to be mothers they are conceived they are conceived of as crucial but incompetent um so motherhood is you know, people say it's the hardest job in the world. And they think that they're like, you know, like saying, you, that's you, you're doing great. But no, they're not. They're saying it should be the hardest job in the world. That's why you need recourse. If it's a job, you need recourse to all this expertise. And it's a shame that people are just allowed to have children willy nilly without it, without degrees and so on. Um, and so there's been this kind of problemization of the family and also of intergenerational relationships. The form of the family matters quite a bit less. So people will go on and on about the form of families and like um, recognition of, you know, same sex couples and so on. The state has no problem doing that. Nor do I, by the way, <laughs> I think that's, it's quite important, but the state has no problem recognizing this um, and problematizing those who, you know, hold out. Um, you know, like the European Union will sort of push, um, even in the absence of internal debate within their member states, that they push these these uh, kind of agendas of same-sex marriage onto them, partially for good reason, because you need to recognize fam and co cohere families across borders, but also because they don't care about the actual makeup. Oh, you just went out. Them. Oh. Say that again. They don't care about what? After they don't care about the actual makeup. The behaviors of particular members. I need to uh, invest in a better internet connection. Well, oh. it's funny because each time you said they don't care about the actual, and then it would go out. I feel like yeah. there's a spy out there who's pressing the mute button on you whenever you try to make this point. Um, I am going to invest in a better connection. I, I actually, the first time I cut out, I said to my husband, I just sent a message. I was like, go and get us better internet tomorrow. <laughs> anyways, um, I'm in Greece at the moment. Um, mm. Anyways, um, so uh, they don't care. They don't care about the actual makeup of families, the members themselves. They care more about the behavior that goes on within them. <laughs> you got past the censor that time. Go ahead, <laughs> Jared. Well, okay, so to make it even more complicated, um, 
the whole thing with Wilhelm Reich and the counterculture and sexual liberation mm-hmm. coming out of the early 1920s, especially after Wilhelm Reich publishes his work on uh, the character of fascism or something like that, basically looking at the family as being the source of the impulse towards authoritarianism. And this shaped an entire rebellion against the family in the new left, Mm -hmm. which is quite different from what you're talking about that the state is doing. Uh, Almost the opposite. And it sounds like what leftists are doing now is confusing these two things. And they are accepting some of the critiques of the fascist character armor, so on and so forth that were put out earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of blinding them to the importance of family as a, uh, uh, in all sorts of other ways that the state is attacking as a haven in a heartless world. (laughs) Everybody always wants to now look, I'm not saying go like join a family because it's a haven in a heartless world or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for people who are already part of families, for people who aspire to be part of families, um, the development of a private sphere in which you can make free and autonomous choices was a important development of modernity. And it is, I think we should be very careful when we want to roll that back by saying, Oh, well, who cares? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and this is the the site in which all these bad ideas are reproduced. So we should really get in there and make changes. I think you have to think really carefully about that. Um, but you know, it's interesting what you just mentioned about um, fascism is that um there was a strong cult of motherhood within Nazi Germany, as I'm sure you're aware that there was um, an enormous amount of Goebbels. Yeah. Uh, And they, you know, they never really achieved in reality, some of the things that they set out to do, um, which was, I mean, lots of people managed to do it, but they were like, after a woman had her baby, she'd get sent off to a retreat to recover for a bit and she'd get the best food and all of this sort of thing. And part of those retreats were education, you know, and about in, you know, how to be a good mother in the sense that the German state wished you to be. What's interesting is when they talked about family in their, and motherhood in their um, literature, their sort of internal writings, they weren't worshiping mothers as they were. (laughs) They railed against the, Pre, the the sort of liberal unwillingness to intervene and manage the behavior of people in families. So this is the thing that often confuses people, that when people say family is important, they misread that to mean like families as they are, <laughs> are important, and we should love them and nurture them and support them. <laughs> what they actually mean is families are determinant. They determine the outcomes of society, of individuals, of behaviors, of social problems, of social inequality. And that's why they're important. We cannot leave them alone. (laughs) We cannot trust people to act autonomously. We cannot trust people to make decisions because they obviously make the wrong decisions or else why would we have social problems? And so the cult of motherhood wasn't this like, uh, this is the sort of paradox of women are wonderful. It's like, women are wonderful, women are wonderful. Well, what do you mean by that? It's like, you must be wonderful in these particular ways. And we'll betide the woman who isn't. Um, and so uh, a society that bangs on about women are wonderful will doubly punish a woman who kills a child. 
So if a man, and I'm not saying I'm not defending people who kill children, obviously, but if a man kills a child or kills his own child, he gets punished less severely than a woman because the expectation is that a woman must be, women are wonderful. So it's horror. It's doubly horrifying when a woman does that sort of thing and she gets punished doubly. And it's, you don't have to kill somebody. You just, you just punish doubly when you fail to live up to the women are wonderful. You don't have to kill a child. Just have to not live up to the expectations. Yeah, and it's all really relevant right now in the United States because of all the stuff with abortion. And I don't know how this is in other countries, but in the United States, the fascists here very much rely on a myth of the uh, the family and its uh, wholesomeness to advance their cause. And I think it, mm-hmm. it's very... Uh, it's a very touchy subject, especially for gender nonconforming, sexual minorities, whatever. Also for Jews, though, um, because in particular, the Nazis here or the fascists are blaming Jewish people for the promotion of pornography and for all this cultural Marxism that is... Uh, you know, supposed to be destroying the family. And I'm I'm interested in how we could talk about both of these things without confusing them. Yeah. Well, I want to raise th- this question, which is to what degree do we think families actually are determinate? Because um, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm thinking about Wilhelm Reich and maybe the Frankfurt School and you know there are others. Situationist International. They they didn't. He didn't talk about the family so much, that much. But um, there is this turn towards psychoanalysis, uh, especially after World War II, to try to understand why the working class couldn't take hold of a political project to overcome capitalism, mm-hmm. and um, the degree to which. We are shaped by um, our childhoods and our family life and the overall uh, culture of capitalism and the way in which that that ideological uh, framework limits uh, workers from seeking self-determination and, and self-abolition. And, and the, um, uh, the, the question for me is, do we have to... Uh, uh, reject fully reject Reich, say, um, in order to overcome the current attack on working class families and people, and and uh, and I do I want to complicate it a little bit and say we should not ignore the way in which the new left that embraced Reich has been uh, absorbed or was liquidated into um, through the university, I think primarily into the state? Well, I think the simple answer is that families do matter, but not as much as people think. Um, and they're not, you can like manage the behavior of families all you want, but we're not going to solve the big problems of capitalism. You're just going to change the nature of the poor and the working class. And also you create all sorts of other problems at the same time. So we have this whole, um, idea of like a time crunch when it comes to families. And I hate to repeat myself over and over and over again. Um, but there's this, you know, this work-life balance discourse, which says, 
you know, there's just not enough time. There's just not enough time work. And then people don't understand this. And they're like, oh, well, people work too much. They work too much. Um, but how do you reconcile that with the fact that parents actually spend more time with their children than has been the case for at least, I don't know, since at least the 1970s, at least? Um, how do uh, parent, Parents are spending more time with their children, not less. And the answer is because the expectations that have been heaped upon the family, the responsibility for social problems that has been heaped upon the family has meant that parents are tasked with so much more than was the case in the past. Um, and so the idea is that you must parent extraordinarily intensively. You must put an enormous amount of time, money, energy into this. It must be a project. It requires learning. You have, you can't just like you read these like parent, this parenting literature and even just online discourse where it's like, you can't just take your kid to the park. You got to be up there on the play stuff. And you see like all these adults, in there with the kids like they can't work things out for themselves anymore because the parents are like all up in their business because that's the expectation and woe betide the the parent who sits there on their phone while their children are playing looking up to make sure they don't hurt themselves no it has to be intensive you must this all the time um and so what has happened is that we've created what Sharon Hayes calls the cultural contradictions of motherhood and now it's being extended to fathers as well where you're expected to be an intensive worker but also an intensive parent so your that that's your answer to the kind of the question to what degree are families determinant? I'll not not you. not very much, and seeing them as determinant means that we uh, make family life that we just suck all the potential joy out of family life, and we subject it to the rationalization of the public sphere, which is the precise opposite of how most people experience their families. They're willing to make sacrifices for it be, precisely because they see it as a haven from the economization and the metrics that govern public life. And yet we're seeing it as progressive to basically subject family life to a, a number of key performance indicators, um, that everything that you do is a behavior that is subject to science and rational, so-called science, <laughs> rationalization and efficiency and so on, and um, is measured in the outcomes of your child. Uh, and, right, and this yeah. just makes it impo an impossible task. I think a really good example of that is like uh, Silicon Valley, the um, where my sister lives, the pressure on parents and on children to achieve is so high that you had this rash of uh, contagious suicides in Palo Alto among teenagers just mm -hmm. because and this is a progressive liberal sort of uh, ideal that is being being pushed. And so. Yeah, there's there's very real uh, devastating consequences to to that kind of intervention. Um, yeah, that and they're like they're like horrible stories of of um, you know there's this story of a black woman obviously because like ethnic minorities suffer the most from this sort of thing where this woman was at a park and her two year old wandered off for witnesses say no more than two minutes when she realized that the child was gone she oh, looks for him in a park you know and uh another woman was holding him she goes oh thank you so much and the woman was on the phone and she refused to give the child back and she was on the phone with the police White and woman? even though the child of course <laughs> and even though the child was reaching out for the mother she refused to give the child back anyway so a few days later um they 
the social workers come for like a, a, a wellness check or whatever. Well, I think it was like listed as a well-being check or something. And uh, she had just given the children a bath and she was downstairs um, and she's, she couldn't hear out of one of her ears. She was downstairs doing the laundry. So she didn't hear the social worker knocking at the door, but the children did. And they were up against the glass like, oh, who's here in the window? And they weren't wearing any clothes because they just had a bath. And like, it's so bad because it's like, I let my kids wander around naked all the time. Like <laughs> they're half European. We don't care. And I just felt so much for this woman because they, the social worker looked at them like, oh my God, these children are naked in the window. They're obviously not being cared for properly. And she calls the police. Um, oh my God. And yeah. And the police come and um, the woman didn't hear the police come in, come. And so I can't remember everything that happened, but they like barge in uh, start going through the cupboards and stuff to see like, are the children being fed properly and so on. And it winds up that the police hog tied this woman, um, with her arm and busted her sh shoulder. Um, and okay, she, she was just calling her mother-in-law to like, come take care of the children. I can't remember. There was some sort of insanity ensued when the police felt that they weren't being listened to enough. And the children are screaming, watching their child, watching their mother get dragged out of the house with a broken arm and thrown into the back of a, a police car. And all of this, all of this was because there was a concern that their mother was not attentive enough. <laughs> and she um, ended up getting charged with, um, I can't remember, like, um, child something but it was never uh, neglect or something but it um the charges were dropped but because she was a nurse just having that charge on her record um, meant that she lost her job you know this is what happens and there's so so many cases like this um there's a case now in, uh in scotland of a nigerian family who was just accused of using corporal punishment in the home that is light smacking for the purposes of discipline because beating children obviously was already illegal, but they recently made light corporal punishment a crime. So there's no distinction between a smack on the back of the leg and beating and assaulting the child. That is now assault. And so, so it was just an accusation. And they took the, they took the father out of the home and he's still not been reunited with his children, lost his job. It's been three months. This family is absolutely devastated and destroyed and all on the grounds of like, oh, well, too, too much caution is never enough. And you destroy families when you do this. How, how much of this is like related to the, the state seeing the school system as not being sufficient for uh, socializing children because back in the 90s you had like this big push you know you had movies like Dangerous Minds or something you had the the white savior teacher going into the black school district and telling them all how to behave and uh, working with them to not be criminals and it seems like now mm -hmm. from your research it looks like the state is kind of saying well that didn't work and we have to double down on our effort and extend uh, uh, like um, discipline into the home at a, at a, you know, a legal level. Oh, yeah. Well, the, I think it's actually the other way around that they don't trust families, which is why there's a ton of pressure on education. Like any time there's a social problem, people will say, where are the parents? And then they'll say, 
it should be taught in schools. <laughs> you know, that's the next thing that they'll say. Um, and so the education system gets bogged down with like a million different agendas. Um, but yeah, they, they double down. That's what they do. And I think this is, you can see this again and again and again, this across a huge range of issues, not just with families, but with individuals, with humanity in general, when they keep blaming individual behaviors and the problem, and they try to do something about it. They have this like behavioral intervention and the problem persists. They don't think, well, geez, maybe it's not behavior. Maybe it's a structural issue. <laughs> they go, oh, no, people are this. People are even more ignorant than we thought. People are even more of a lost cause than we thought. So they become more heavy handed um, and they, they go further. So it used to be like intervening in the first three years, but that wasn't enough to intervene in the womb, <laughs> but that wasn't enough. You need to intervene in the life of the woman before she gets pregnant, i.e. all women who could possibly have children. And so you see public health advice. Sometimes it's like alcohol should be avoided for pregnant women and women who could get pregnant. <laughs> I, I think that's what I'm saying. They're, they're saying that the school isn't enough to correct these issues that come from the family, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That Where, come from behavior in general or something wrong with the human subject. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about it is it's, we're talking about the family but mm -hmm. it's not as though they trust single people more, right? No, exactly. It, it's it's just that the responsibility is different. You don't they don't have the responsibility of uh, raising the next uh, you know round of workers, so they may not be as under as much surveillance. But we are dealing with, uh, uh, especially I think in the UK, but in, even in the United States, with the a bureaucratic state that wants to micromanage its own population. Um, you know, there's a distrust of civil society in general. Um, yeah, the family matters because it's the cause of the dysfunctional individual, um, mm -hmm. the individual who makes the wrong choices. Um, who, because that's how you explain like economic problems. Uh, it's just people just keep messing things up. It's it can't possibly be internal to the system that was done away with almost a hundred years ago, maybe more. Um, so it has to so well, you just keep looking, well, okay, what, where did the person go wrong? And they keep going further and further back, right? So it goes mm -hmm. in this sort of loop. Oh, okay, it's the parents and uh, before the age of 18, and then it's before the age of three, and then it's the pregnant woman and the woman before she gets pregnant, and God knows what will happen before that. With it. And it's just a, this inability of capitalism to deal with some intractable issues and pushing it onto the subject. So mm -hmm. I think what I, I always come back to when I hear this is the way that I myself or people I knew or uh, people of my generation would respond to all of this was to abandon our own families and find surrogates among each other, whether in the punk community mm -hmm. or a gang or whatever it was. You had this, you know, this massive rise in youth uh, subcultures. And within those spaces, there was a different kind of anti-family mentality, which was to talk about all the abuse that one uh, suffered in their own family. And I, there seems to be this tension uh, in the left because of all this, that I don't know how to get past. Um, yeah, you know, uh, we've we've been talking for just about forty five minutes now, and I know Ashley is tired. Yeah, so actually, what I no, think, I'm re-energized. <laughs> oh, good, oh, good. But I, I think that maybe what we could do is at this point, um, I'll just note that we're going to now talk 
for the parrot room for the patreon but this is the, what we'll talk about is exactly i wanted to raise something like this issue uh, uh cyber dandy which is to say that i think a lot of people who are attracted to the left whether it's as anarchists or marxists or social democrats um when they come to the left when they're young as a way to individuate from their family um, and often enough, they're the kind of people who had difficulty coming of age uh, and and maybe uh, are coming from families which have a very different value system than the ones that they're trying to embrace. Right. So the and and let's be honest, um, parents, they fuck you up. I mean, uh, I say or even a- or even they're coming from families where the family values of their families don't conform to what society wanted. For instance, you know, from an indigenous family or from a Jewish family where they go to school and they're expected to behave in a way that someone from a middle class white family would behave and they don't. And that becomes a problem. It's not always like this sort of like uh, rebellion against the parent. But right. But yeah. the, the, the um the idea is that it, it it seems very natural for most people as they come into the left to look back on their childhood. I think it come, seems really natural for a, a lot of maybe middle class people to look back on their childhood. Americans, or, especially. <laughs> I've never seen it more than in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and to say, oh, yeah, I suffered a lot. And, uh, you know, I was really abused by my perfectly normal parents and and i mean i'm only speaking for myself here i'm looking back about how i used to conceive of my childhood in an upper middle class home in a perfectly safe neighborhood uh and uh, where everything you know i never went hungry i never had any real issues no one ever beat me um and uh and feel like oh they were they were mean to me and um uh so i I, but I, i don't want to belittle I'm belittling only myself here. Um, But the point is, how do we address some of the concerns that people have about about the family on the left without um, embracing this bureaucratic state? And that's what we'll talk about from from this point on. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.